we, when we talk about the Psalms, right, we talk about we talk about the fact that it's it, it's different type of book of a Bible, right? It's it's a song, and people talk about singing the Psalms, singing the songs. But I do I do think I do think it's potentially a little bit more complex than that, right? Because the way we engage with songs is we don't just we don't just sing them, we hear them, we we absorb them. You know, one of my many pastimes is to sit at home in an evening and just sit there with a cup of tea and just put the music on and just listen to it. I don't try and sing it right. With voice might mind, you can't do justice to any of its songs, right? You just, well, maybe boys don't cry, but most of them I would not be able to do justice to, right? Um, but actually you can listen to them, right? And you can let the, you can let the words and the music just kind of wash over you in some ways. And there's, there's something about putting words and music together, which it kind of like seems to supercharge the words, if you see what I mean. It's like putting fuel in a car or sweets in a kid. It like kind of come alive. And it just, I think it does something emotionally to you. Certainly, certainly that's my experience. Of, you know, there's a whole load of things you can say, but suddenly... When they're in a song, it means something. And, you know, it's just different to a lecture. It's different to just writing things down. And Tim Keller, he, he, he speaks of this way that, like, a way um, songs can command a culture. So he says, you know, it, it goes all the way back from, like, right, the dawns of time of ancient mysticism all the way to now, that actually, if you want to influence or control a society, then control their music, control their culture, control the arts, because all of those things influence the way people feel. Um, could we just, is there a way of jumping to the next slide? Okay, thank you. Um, can anyone, anyone tell me, either, maybe they're far too obvious, these people, but I, I, I wouldn't have been able to guess who they are. Can anyone tell me who those people are? Thank you. Thank you, Bruno Mars and Miley Cyrus. Why, why, why have I put, that was far too easy, wasn't it? I've got some harder ones later, so we'll, we'll see how we get on. Um, why have I put this up? Well, so Bruno Mars wrote a song, I Was Your Man. And it's a song, basically, where he talks about a failed relationship, right? His regrets over all the things he wished he could have done differently if he had his time again, if he'd taken better care of a girl, if he'd bought her flowers. It's too late, right? And then Miley Cyrus, she comes up with a song, right, which is kind of a response to that. Her song's called Flowers, and she's saying, look, actually, actually, Mr. Bruno Mars, you don't need to buy me flowers. You can buy, I can buy my own flowers. I'm an independent woman. You don't need to take me dancing. I can take myself dancing myself. And, you know, if she just, if she just said that to a journalist, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't doesn't really resonate, but there's something about the fact she's put it to this song and she's found some way of singing it, where you kind of go, you know, it, it kind of connects with culture in a different way, and of course, I'm a sucker for this, and I no longer buy Hannah flowers or take her dancing, because <laughs> I've been influenced by Miley Cyrus, but, but I guess, why am I saying these things right? Well, Psalm 136, it's not a narrative, it's not just, it's not just a load of words, we can't approach it like it is. It's, there's an emotion which Miley Cyrus and Bruno Mars have got to the bottom of, right, of when you put words to music, when you put it to a song, which we're going to have to try our best to tease out this morning as we look at the psalm. 
Um, but before we do that, I'd like to actually um, read the psalm itself. So, Joy, if you wouldn't mind coming up and doing the reading, thank you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever, and Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever, and gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Right, question two, who's that on the screen? Now, one of them's probably obvious and one of them's not obvious. Deliberately picked a slightly difficult picture of them. This one's hard, and I'm not, I'm not getting many responses this time. Have we got any hands in the air for these? Elton John's one of them. Who's the other one? Sorry? It's... Um, the clue is it's, Elton, it's someone who wrote the songs of Elton John. Got it. So, the, why have I put that? Well, there's something unique about the way Elton John and Bernie Taupin wrote the songs, which it, were genuinely unusual. So, what would happen is Bernie would write the words in one room, metaphorically speaking, and they'd hand the words to Elton John, and Elton John would put the music to it. Now, there is no 
conferring between them. So it's literally just a baton gets passed. The baton of the words gets passed from Bernie to Elton, who puts the music to it. And Bernie speaks of how sometimes the music wasn't what he had in his mind, right? Because songwriting is a personal, emotional experience, right? And he's picturing all these things, all these experiences, he puts the word, uh, words down, and then he gets this music. I mean, you can imagine Crocodile Rock, right? You must have been, what on earth have you done to do? I don't know what those words meant, but the can't meant that right. Now, but you see, you see the emotions of Bernie Telpin in the words of something like, if you take something like your song, right? There's a, you know, he, he speaks of, um, he speaks of something sometimes writing about things which he hadn't even experienced or really had very much knowledge of, but he was writing in some ways aspirationally. And you see in your song, you see, you see that really clearly. So he's writing about a young couple who, who don't have much, who really only have their hopes for the future. And they don't know how the future's really going to work out, but they've got each other and that's, that's enough for them. Probably how you two feel at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but I think what I'm saying is well, I think there's that sense in the Psalm 136 of a baton being passed right so we've got, we've got the words of Psalm 136 and the, the psalmist is passing the baton to us and saying what tune do you put to these words how do you, how do you emotionally relate to them how do, you, how do you make these words come alive in your heart. Now, we'll come back to that, but what, what is the point of Psalm 136? Now, I'm looking for the young ones here. Um, can anyone under the age of, I don't know if I could read at the age of seven, but can anyone under the age of seven tell me what the point of Psalm 136 is? Is that too, I don't know, that's too difficult. Eight. I'll keep going up. <laughs> and all under the age of eight. Well, okay. I think for those of us who are older, we can see there's a repeated phrase, right? So, um, Justin Moat actually many years ago um, taught me amongst many other people, some of whom in this room about how to study by the way. So I'd always look for repeated phrases, right? And that came in really, really handy when I was looking at this passage, right? Because it says... For his steadfast love endures forever. And it says it again and again and again. Now, I guess the question is what, what does this mean, right? So, for God's steadfast love to endure forever. This idea of God promising to love his people forever. Now, I don't know. I'll have one more go at audience participation. If I don't get a response, I will just start giving out the answers. So, can anyone give me one example? I, mean, I need one example. I've lowered my expectations. Thank you, Tom. You don't want to ask, but you give me an example of love that you've experienced in your life. You weren't expecting that one, were you? No, never experienced any love. <laughs> Where's Rich gone? <laughs> Great. And when you go to church and everyone's all happy around you, that is the only time Tom experiences love. <laughs> at home, at home he doesn't experience. I don't know. This is the beauty of not planning these things, isn't it? Anything can happen. Um, and you know, when we when we look, 
I, I won't ask too many questions then, but when, when we look at the psalm, we can see lots of examples of God's love too. And it kind of, they're all really to do with the Exodus, but I've just put them up on the screen. So we see, we see a kind of starting point, which is all about thanking God in his character. We then see God's love in creation. We see God's love in rescuing the Israelites from Egypt. And then we see God delivering a new land to his people. And obviously, as we move to the New Testament, we see God's love in Jesus and in the promises he makes to us there. But the, but the other side of God's love is the fact the statement says God's love lasts forever. I think the word is it endures forever. And the truth is it's quite difficult. I, I thought, what illustration do you give of something which lasts forever. And anyone who's old enough will know that that doesn't last forever. Does anyone actually know what that car is? I've tried to make this reasonably difficult. Sorry? No, it's not an Avenger. No. No, definitely not. No one knows. This, this is a car, this is a Morris Marina. Um, which is an example of, now for you younger people, I'm going to just do a bit of bat work now. To, um, you, you shouldn't really give illustrations, we have to give bat work, but anyway, we, we, we will do anyway. In the, in the 1970s and 1980s, what happened was, everyone bought British cars, right? They bought Austins, Morrises, Rovers, whatever it was. But what happened was, they basically broke after six months and they'd start rusting and falling apart. And that, for a while, that worked really well for the British car industry because it created a lot of demand for new models. But after a while, consumers got fed up and they started to buy foreign cars, which is why, if we look outside, we can see mainly, I don't know, Japanese, German cars, Skoda's ironically right. <laughs> but anyway, the, but the point is it didn't last very long. Now, if we take, does anyone, we must know, loads of people must know what that car is. I was like, a Honda Jazz, right? Now, why have I put Honda Jazz up? A Honda Jazz was voted the most uh, reliable car by some magazine, right? Now, actually, when this, this doesn't really relate to the illustration, but when I, when I first got married, I was surprised how many members of the Brew and Irvin family had, had the jazzes, so much so that to fit in, I actually, we briefly had one. Um, I don't know whether it worked. You can ask Ian and Kate afterwards, whether, or Mark or Rachel, whether we, it kind of brought us more into the family. But the point is, even, even with a Honda Jazz, right? So how, how long does a Honda Jazz last for? You know, you might get to 20 years, 25 years. May, maybe you could stretch it to 30. But after that point, you're kind of into Trigger's broom territory, right? Where by the time you kind of, you've replaced or repaired so much of it that the original car's not really there. The point is it doesn't, you know, these things don't last. Even things that we think last a really long time, it's actually quite short. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to now embarrass, I, I usually embarrass the children, I'm not going to embarrass anyone slightly older. Can anyone stand up who's been married for 20 years or longer? I know there's some people who've been 20 years, wow, that's a lot. I was expecting like four people to stand up, right. <laughs> so, right, I've got to go up on the numbers here. 20, yeah, stay standing if you've been married for 25 years or longer. Okay. Right, I'm going to say 30. 30 or longer, stay standing. Wowzer. Right, 30, this, this isn't going how I thought. 35. You're going to have to shout out. It's an outright shootout now. 
Graham and Beth, give, give me a number, please. Oh, oh dear. 41, Ian and Kate. 45. Oh, well, congratulations. Hopefully I've endeared myself with my uh, in-laws in about uh, the... Um, how, long were, um, how long were John and Thelma married for? Does anyone do you know? 69 years. Wow. Wow. But the, the point is, like, you know, like that is amazing, right? It is amazing, those numbers. And they're amazing, but in some ways they're not even that long. You know, when we talk about forever, we're thinking of things which to us seem really long, and we get into 45, 50, and 69, we're drawing a big breath, right? Because the truth is, we don't have any real frame of reference for anything which lasts forever. So the question we've got to ask is, what does it mean for God to love us forever? We know we can't do clever illustrations, right? I think when we look at Psalm 136, what it's talking about is God's, God's acts of love being shown to us forever. Because if you look at the psalm, what it's talking about is God's acts of love, right? It's pointing to the way God has loved us in the past. Specific things God has done through the exodus to love us, right? And if God's love doesn't change, then God's acts of love will continue. And we we have the ultimate comfort. We have this comfort that the Lord Jesus will take us from where we are now being stood in this church hall, having been rescued from sin. And he will take us with God's love to a promised place, right? A promised land. Heaven. New creation. And when we talk about that, we're not, you know, if I've not got a clever PowerPoint of it, but if you were to go around an art gallery and look at a picture of heaven, you'd probably see one of those pre-Raphaelite paintings where it's, uh, you know, it's got an angel with a harp and it's got someone floating on a cloud and I can tell you what, if that's heaven, I'd rather stay here, right? But that's not what heaven is at all. This world isn't plan B, right? The Lord, the Lord has made this world and it's been marred by sin, but the promise is to take the sin out of this world, to remake it perfectly and to have us all living here together with his love being shared for us. And I think one of the reasons it's difficult to get our heads around God's love and kind of that promise is because day-to-day life just feels quite difficult. And if our experience of God is difficult now, why should it be great in the future, right? Because we know God loves us, but it feels difficult, right, most of the time, because our lives are a struggle. And I think it's a bit like this. So when... In the morning, when I'm getting the kids ready, and all the parents in the room were liking this, imagine, right, you've got, you're going on a really good day out. It's the best day out ever, right? And you're all looking forward to it, you and the kids. And there's a moment in which you say to them, get your shoes on. And at that moment, you don't care whether they want to get their shoes on. You don't care whether they enjoy putting their shoes on. And you don't care even whether they're very good at getting the shoes on. You just want them to get the shoes on because to get the shoes on is what is necessary to go on that great day out, right? And I think we, you know, if as a toddler you go, oh, 
you're trying to make me put my shoes on and I don't like putting my shoes on, therefore you've not got a good day out for me. The logic doesn't stack up right. The danger is that's a logic I think I feel in my heart with God sometimes. I think he can't have great promises laid out for me because my life now is difficult, right? But all we're doing now is doing up our laces for a great doubt which God has promised. It's necessary. It's not always fun, but it's necessary to receive that great promise he's given us. And that great promise is that we've got a God who won't get bored. A God whose love won't end. A God whose love will be shared with us forever. You know, you think, think about Jesus being on the cross. And he turns, doesn't he, to the thief next to him. And he says, I tell you the truth. Tonight you will be with me in paradise. And that's a promise, right? Paradise. And when I first read Psalm 136, I found the repetition of that statement, you know, the, the statement, um, for his steadfast love endures forever, I found it quite dull. Because I don't know if it, whenever you read the Bible sometimes you just start, you know, like when you start skipping over it. And I just started reading the other lines. And the more I studied it, the slower I went on that sentence until that sentence became what I was really treasuring. And I wasn't skipping over it anymore. Because the idea of God's steadfast love enjoying forever is a comfort. Is a comfort when we face difficulties. So let me finish just by thinking about what this means for us. So when we look at the structure, right, it's not just that it says God's steadfast love endures forever. It's, it's the structure's interspersed um, with other statements, right? And the other statements were all really all around the Exodus. They're all around God taking his people from slavery in Egypt through to the promised land. And for us, we're not, we're not going from slavery to a physical place to the physical promised land, but we're, to, we're going from slavery to sin to the spiritual promised land, right? To heaven, to a new creation. And the question is, If we know that God's never-changing, never-ending love is taking us on that journey from sin to heaven, then just as for the Israelites, there's going to be bumps along the way. And for them, you know, the Israelites are wandering around in the desert and it's hot. They're sweaty. They're thirsty. They're hungry. They don't trust God. They question him. And yet he takes them, doesn't he? He takes them there from slavery through to the promised land. And I guess my point as I finish is this, that that's kind of how it is for us, right? That we feel the stresses and the strains of everyday life. We feel, well, I, I feel sometimes it's not worth it, right? Because it's just too difficult. And sometimes I even question, why did God choose me, right? But it's not an easy walk. And I think we can feel all of those things, and it, it's okay, I think, to feel all, all those things. But it's not the point. And it's not the point of Psalm 136. Psalm 136 tells us the point is that God's love doesn't change. God's love will last forever. It's God's love which takes us from slavery to sin to the promised land. And I think sometimes I think I'm going to mess it up because of everything I do wrong. 
But it's not that. The psalm doesn't talk about that. The psalm talks about God's steadfast love, which he has promised us, which is what has taken us on that journey. And I think that's what it is. That's part of what it is to sing, sing Psalm 136, because I can stand there this morning as a complete failure, and you can sit there this morning as complete failures. And I think, you know, just think about it, right? So I'm, if I think about it being there on that last day in heaven, right, I think I've got to think, I'm, I feel like I'm going to be the worst person in heaven, right? That I'm going to be the last one in the queue. And I'm going to be stood there. I don't know if anyone else feels like that. But, you know, you stood there and you, you kind of got one of those nervous smiles. And you're thinking, someone's going to find me out. Someone's going to find out that I shouldn't be here. Maybe I'll just sneak in. You know, someone will work out that actually I've be, I'm the person least affected by the gospel. I'm this person who just goes back to sin time and time again. I'm the person who needs Jesus more than anyone else. And it might work, forget what it looks like. That's how it is in the heart, right? And you know what it's like in the Psalms, David says, I'd rather be a um, gate, um, doorkeeper in your house than somewhere else. And it's kind of that feeling, right, of just sneaking in, just anything. But I think if you feel like that this morning, I think that's okay, because I think in heaven, we're in the new creation. We're all going to be people at the back of the queue, right? We're all going to have nervous smiles. And we're all going to be there thinking, I don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, I don't. And we're all going to be putting our hands up and going, wow, just a minute. And there'll be a moment where we all realise it, right? We go, just a minute. None of us deserve to be here. At that point, our thankfulness, you know, you look right at being Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. That will be the emotion, right? The emotion won't, I don't think the emotion will even be, oh, my word wasn't my sin bad, right? I think our emotion will be, aren't I so thankful for God's love, which has taken me here and will continue to be with me forever? We'll all be a bunch of frauds together. We'll have all experienced the great escape, the greatest rescue of all time. And it won't be because we're jammy or lucky or we've not got caught or no one's found us out. It'll be because God loves us. And I think Psalm 136 is telling us, if that's how we feel, and in some ways we should all feel like that, right, as Christians, rather than beating ourselves up about it, rather than feeling down, rather than feeling that actually the weight of everything that goes wrong, whether it's something we've done wrong or whether it's just life, right, that's getting us down, whatever it is, we should, instead of thinking about those things, instead of looking at ourselves, we should be looking up, right? We should be looking up to God. And we should be thankful. Thankful for his steadfast love. Not for our feelings, but thankful for his steadfast love, which has taken us from slavery to sin, to being sat here this morning, and will continue to take us on that journey to an eternity with him, where we will experience and know his love in a new way. And where sin, we will be freed from that sin forever. And that is a hope.